Great. Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale the Real Seeker. And today I have a special treat for you guys. I've been promising it uh, off and on for a few weeks now, but um, I reached out to the uh, one of the hosts of Democracy of the Peace, Dead, Matt. Uh, welcome to the show there, Matt. Peace, love. I don't know how they do it. Peace, love. Gosh. I, I think you're right the first time. The other one That's 60s counterculture. We don't represent that stuff. What's up, guys? <laughs> no, that's, no. That's the, that, that was the downfall of Western civilization. What am I doing? <laughs> no, no hippies on this channel. So, <laughs> so, 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 so yeah, we're, we're basically just here. I, I wanted to bring you on uh, the show for a few weeks now. Just kind of doing, for, in the first place, it's your first time on the show. So doing a kind of get to know you type deal. Um, so, yeah, w- with that, uh, the first thing to do, let me turn it over straight to you as my guest. And do you want to kind of introduce my audience as to who you are? Um, I always ask, like, maybe a little bit about your faith journey and, and how you came to be where you're at. Oh, my goodness. If you don't mind. The whatever. spark notes, the spark notes of the spark notes of the spark notes of the spark notes. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to be careful here. I got to look at this green dot that looks like how 5,000, 9,000 from 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> hey, guys, how's it going? <laughs> this green dot here. <laughs> um, I'll try. So I'm Matt. I'm from Myrtle Beach, I guess, docs myself. Uh, I actually became a Christian by reading the book of Revelation, literally, and watching a Carmen video, Carmen the Evangelist in the late 90s, this is 1998, January 6th, remember the day. And he had a gospel message at the end. It wasn't just the creatures coming out of the water and all that. (laughs) There was like a gospel uh, message at the end. It really, really moved me. And there was another cassette VHS tape that my mom got me called uh, The Search for God and Rock and Roll. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, who is the guy that did it? He was kind of hippie-ish. I think he was a hippie convert. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, you know, he did all those things where he played the songs backwards. And it was like, maybe it could be a demon playing them backwards yeah. or something. <laughs> but it was actually a really cool uh, video. But uh, I remember him like, we're, we're about to play a song. It's, it's filled with, it, it's just really bad. Uh, but listen to the spirit in which he sings it and how opposite it is the spirit of Christ. And I remember him playing Highway to Hell and I was like, this is an awesome song. <laughs> this is great. But I'm really young at the time. So this is the first time I heard those chords because I'd grown up on Christian music. And I was like, that blues-based rock is amazing. Well, anyway, he sucks me in and then there's a gospel thing at the end of that. I watched those videos back to back, gave my life to Christ that way. Then I think what the catalyst, I'll just do the catalyst for it. I visited my brother's half sister and they're kind of into the occult. They have gargoyles around their house and they're very not for Christianity at all. And I remember being like wearing shirts, like with the Bible on it that says, read it while it's still legal, (laughs) like shirts like that, where you get it, you get it from those Christian stores. Like instead of Adidas, it would say like, add Jesus, (laughs) all that stuff. Or like CrossFit and it shows like Jesus doing a push-up with the cross on his back. Um, and so I would just do like the four law stuff and she really like laid it into me and like get, uh, asked me really hard questions, just not really to have answers, but just kind of attack me. And I remember uh, being very angry and walking off from her in Cape May, New Jersey and wandering the ghettos by myself <laughs> for, for like hours and not really knowing where I'm going. And, you know, I finally... Uh, bumped into my dad who jumped out of the car. Where were you? What are you doing? She made fun of me because of my, my religion. I was such a baby. <laughs> but I, I, I returned from that trip to uh, Myrtle Beach. And I had a friend of mine 
whose dad was a scholar. He was an academic. He was a psychoanalyst. He had his own practice in Myrtle Beach. And his house was strewn with uh, philosophy books, psychology books, apologetics books. So when I would come over to hang out with Matt, I would be like, hey, hey, dude, what's going on? We play a little video game that I kind of wander off in this two-story house with books everywhere and just read these books and talk to talk to his dad about Christianity and stuff. And I was like, what is this? Like, what's, what's on this? He's like, yeah, this is philosophy. This is, this is called philosophy. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. I want to do this. And then I saw some debates by Craig and I was like, what does he do for a living? Like, how can you just do this for a living? Oh, he's a professor. And I was like, oh, okay. So what do you got to do? You got to go to school and you got to get your bachelor's and your master's and your PhD. And you can actually do this for a living. I was like, oh my gosh, this sounds awesome. I want to do this. And that's basically what did it. Now, it's been a huge journey, like other domains in my life, like emotionally and, you know, existentially, but as far as the philosophy part of it, which is kind of what I aim my channel towards, but I appropriate other things too, into it. I don't want to just be academic philosophy all the time because we're, we're not Spock, we're humans. Um, but then I just ran out of money and I ended up joining the military in 2010, joined the Air Force to uh, get my GI Bill so I could get money to get the master's. And I got my master's in 2017. And now I'm a stay-at-home dad in Japan. That's it. <laughs> that's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. <clears throat> so you, uh, I left a lot out. <laughs> well, yeah, I was just going to say, like, so out of curiosity, did you ever have, like, a period where, like, you experienced, like, doubts or was it all pretty Oh, much? yeah. Yeah. Um, that's really hard to explain. But, yeah, I have vivid memories of, like I cleaned banks with my dad from 1996 to 2007. And what, what I would be doing there was I would be, just be getting off a job for, from waiting tables and it'd be like 11 at night and I'd still have to go to the bank to vacuum and do the trash. That's way you call it. And you put all this trash in, the, it's, it's dark. You're by yourself. You're in this bank where you see things in the corner of your eye. <laughs> That's some stories, by the way, on that. Some paranormal activity is weird. Possibly could have a natural explanation, but I remember looking up at the sky, just being like, "The hiddenness of God," kind of thing. Like, really, are you there? Like, you know. Um, now that is abstract. And then with me uh, starting in college and even into high school, I had uh, like problems with like social skills. Like, I just didn't know how to like talk to people, so I was a loner a lot. And so I remember this one time in when I was a freshman in college where I think we were playing a board game in like the common room and things have been piling up. And this guy like snapped at me or something like that. And I didn't have the social still skills to kind of like appropriate it properly. I took it really personally. Everything that happened in my life kind of bubbled over. And I remember I went into the woods and I screamed at God for like a couple hours. I had a bloody nose. It came all over my shirt and everything so when i came back in the dorm room everyone's like matt are you okay what's wrong <laughs> i was like oh i just got a bloody nose it runs in the family <laughs> so yeah i remember being like yeah you know you came down as jesus but you don't know what it's like to be a creature you don't know what it's like to be finite you don't know what to speak you don't know what it's like to not be god so you have no idea what i'm going through right now you know what i mean you don't have no idea what it's like to be awkward socially and be like ostracized for that reason you have to like kind of you have to kind of uh, strip these things of yourself voluntarily and give it up and then suffer that way. So you suffer, don't get me wrong, but you're not suffering the way I'm suffering. So how could, how can I go to you? That kind of thing. Mm. It was that, that kind of thing, that kind of doubt. And then uh, God gave me uh, Kierkegaard. So Kierkegaard really, really 
God spoke to me through Kierkegaard, like big time. So worked my way through almost all of his stuff. And again, very abbreviated. He kind of helped me through, still has helped me through. So I still got some stuff. We're all going through stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, what's the quote I heard? Somebody said that like, no matter who you, who you're looking at or who you're talking to, whoever's annoying you at the time, they're going through like a secret battle or something. You know, I think that's true. Like, you know, it only comes out when you actually talk to the person, but uh, that's probably like Lewis's idea. You're like, you have no idea who like, we're in these bodies or whatever, but I guess in reality, we're more beautiful or more ugly than we could possibly imagine in our dreams or whatever, just because of the fact that we're spirit as well. I don't know. It's just stuff that we have to appropriate over time. I think a lot of truths are diachronic in nature. You have to like appropriate them over time. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's like a thickness to truth almost. I've thought about that. Kind of weird, but. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. I'm rambling. Cut me off. No, no, not at all. This, <laughs> this is your story. No, I, I was interested to hear about that because I, I do think that it's, it's kind of like a common thing I find like in my interactions with a lot of skeptics is like, there's almost this like, it's not necessarily just the intellectual argument, the hiddenness from God, but there's that experiential hiddenness. Like you can't relate to me and stuff like that. Um, you know, you're just this other being kind of thing. You have no idea what it's like on a human level, like what I'm going through with my doubts or suffering or stuff like that. And for a lot of skeptics, I found like my old co-host from Skeptics and Seekers, this was a huge deal to him, but like, uh, it's a little bit before, but like mentioning the Christianity angle, uh, well, that's kind of the point of the incarnation. Jesus, during his time of humiliation, he can relate to us on an experiential level and stuff. So I don't know if that, that was impactful for you. Like that sort of revelation would have spoken to that issue. Yeah. The hiddenness of God, I feel manifests itself in, in like various ways. So one of the ways in which it manifests itself is in what you just said. So like take it, take an outsider that hasn't had the experience. God is actually hiding a little bit in a sense behind like what you just said, that you'll actually find God in the experience of God to the outsider that hasn't had the experience. That sounds ridiculous. <laughs> you know what I mean? And the only thing that could ever allow that thing that you just said, which is actually true, like propositionally, like it's a true statement that you just said, the reason why it's true, or the only way we can have epistemic access to its truth is to actually approach it in a way that we can't, like a scientist, like in a way that the scientist doesn't approach their hypotheses. It's gotta be like the complete opposite way. You gotta like open up to it. And what Kierkegaard talks about works of love specifically, I think it's in the opening page. He says that what makes a lot of people nervous about this is that the qualia of it, when you open yourself up to truths that can only be accessed in that way where you have to meet it halfway kind of thing, it seems qualitatively indistinguishable from self-delusion. So they've, it feels like you're deluding yourself when you're in the middle of it. But the only way to find out whether or not it's really true and, you're, and it's not self-delusion is to actually do it. But what stinks is after you actually do it and you experience the truth of it, all you have left to, to communicate to the person that hasn't experienced it are words and language, propositions, describing your ineffable experience. So God's hiding in that too. <laughs> it's just like, it never ends. But... I don't know. Do you agree with that? I don't know. That's just something I've thought about. I think so. when I go to, when I go to explain the experience, I have to use language now. And a lot of the, uh, and a lot of the properties of this experience from, if, if I were like to introspect a little bit and, and like go back to see what I just experienced, like the, uh, 
I don't know, the footprint in the sand. I didn't see the, the foot actually go in the sand. I have to like introspect and I see the footprint, but I don't have the experience anymore of what I had when the foot was actually going in the sand kind of thing. So I'm not exactly introspecting what it is I just experienced kind of thing. And it's just like, okay, now I have to translate something that I experienced throughout without the medium of language, with language. And then there's going to be some sort of experiential interaction with the language but the experiential interaction with the language isn't going to match the experience that I had that wasn't mediated by the language. So it's just, it, it's all hiding in there. It's all weird. It's all, it's all like, it's really dynamic. It's very idiosyncratic. It's very subjective. I like Kierkegaard when he says truth is subjectivity, which that's a pseudonym Climacus, but um, not subjective subjectivity. I think subjects have to appropriate truth in their own time, in their own way, diachronically. And that's going to be different for everybody. So for the person to say, show me, show me what it is you experienced. You're telling me to do something that only a scientist can replicate with regard to hypotheses. And that's just not the way it is with, with these kinds of truths. You know what I mean? It's, it's just hard. It's hard to do. Yeah, do absolutely. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's, it's the quality by definition is a first person. First person. Right. Relative yeah. subjects that, that experience it kind of thing. Right. So if, you haven't experienced it like how how would you explain the color the sensation of redness or something to a blind person you you can't right like you can yeah. if we can't do it with a color patch how are we going to do it with these deeply rich religious experiences <laughs> you know what i mean it's like you need to be like a dante or a milton to actually hint at what it is you're experiencing and we nobody can do that so but it's so cool because god can meet the every man where they're at in their experience, like the act 17 thing, like he's not far from any one of us. So he can like, he can like a, he can condescend to our situations and accommodate himself to every single idiosyncratic way in which our subjectivity manifests itself relative to every human that's ever lived in every time in which they've lived and every culture in which they, it's amazing to think about, yeah. assuming it's true, of course, <laughs> it's just grand. It's true for a second. It's really elegant. It's very elegant. It's very beautiful. It is, yeah. And of course, beauty is a sign of truth only when we're talking about science. We can't we can't apply that theoretical virtue to religion. No, 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 no. no. It's only <laughs> going to be with scientific theories. Scientific. It's like, why? Yeah. <laughs> why not? <laughs> so uh, one thing uh, I want to ask you about, since we're talking kind of like religious experiences as a, a subjective form of evidence and that sort of thing, um, obviously you'll be familiar that a lot of people will kind of say, well, even outside of the experience, the experience is kind of ground and attached properly basic belief. And that kind of translates it into a propositional form. And then you can, is that a justified or warranted proposition, stuff like that? Do, yeah. Would you say like with religious experiences, is it purely the experience itself or is it like an attached properly basic belief, something like that? Or is it both like, what well, I mean, it's like a two-step process. Like, like just take like boring perception, for example, like, okay, I look out my window, I see a tree, right? But then like, okay, what goes into developing a theory of perception? And then when I go in to develop a theory of perception, it's almost like the experience of seeing the tree right now kind of goes in the background. I have to like theoretically evaluate what's going on relative to my cognitive faculties and whether or not the perception of the tree is theory laden and all this stuff. And what's a theory? What does it mean to be theory? Like, and now we're zooming out and, and kind of focusing on like the theoretical structure, I guess, of what goes on when we're experiencing the tree. But then like a nine-year-old can just look at his window and see a tree. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That's where I think God meets us. 
Now we have to answer like questions, I guess, if, if like theoretical questions are brought up about whether or not they're gonna trust the experience that we all have. And so now we have to kind of meet that problem on its own theoretical grounds kind of and just say, well, no, you, you know, basic beliefs are different because of X, Y, Z and uh, properly basic beliefs, like when you inject normativity into it, um, then this follows. Um, and I only bring that stuff up if they ask, honestly. And it's it's really hard to get into again because it's all abstract and theoretical. It, it really is, and it, not a lot of people can can think abstractly. It's it's kind of annoying. So you got to kind of break things down metaphorically, and then they got to connect the metaphors, you know, abstractly to to the theoretical structure. And that could be hard imaginatively to be able to do that. That's why I like about our God. I think our God can meet everybody where they're at, no matter like what their intellectual development is. So like the people that ask the questions, like, like a table looks pretty simple, but once you start asking about the molecular structure of the table, now I have to start giving you like high level physics explanations of why the molecular structure is the way it is. But then if the person were to complain, well, why is it so complicated? Why is, why is the molecular? Well, because you asked the question. <laughs> Nobody needs to know about that. You can still set your, your drink on the table. That's all you need. But once you start asking the deep questions about the table, I have to give you those level, those kind of deep level kind of explanations of what's going on. And that's what I feel like there's a double standard with Christian theology. It's just like, it's so simple that a child can, can see it and, and become saved. But once you start asking deep theological questions about it and you get deep theological answers to the deep theological questions, then they're like, well, why is it going to be so complicated? It doesn't have to be so complicated, but you ask the question. <laughs> it's just like, what the heck do you want to do? It's like a catch 22. I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I encountered that a lot. Yeah. Trust me. I'm on, on my old show kind of thing in the boards. It was pri primarily skeptics kind of thing, like Jesus mythicist type skeptics and stuff. So like, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely yeah. familiar with like them asking these theoretical questions just to kind of like, they don't care about the answer or something like that. It's more just and look at it. Look at it too on an existential level, like like a Christian existential level. Okay. Look at these like Christian mythicism. Look at that for example. Don't look at like the arguments for and against it, but just look at it as kind of like a like a, a ideological entanglement of different propositions related to each other in terms of arguments for and against certain theses, something like that. Mm -hmm. You can look at that big jumble of stuff and kind of go in there, inject yourself into it, and be lost in it forever. And I can't argue your, I can't give you an argument to see your way out of that. But you chose with your own free will to look into this issue with a certain set of methodological dispositions. And now you're trapped in there, methodologically, you're, you're trapped. And so there's really nothing I can do at that point. So a lot of this stuff is like irrational as far as like using your will to volitionally jump into the truth, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think I agree with the leap um, of faith kind of thing. I think the Danish is leap into faith, if I remember right. Interesting. Leap into faith. But arguments help. But Kierkegaard says, I mean, on a certain methodological level, they are, in a sense, endless approximations. There is a point in the argumentative process where you have to just be like, I choose to believe this. And everybody does it. Everybody does it. Yeah. Yeah. Even, even the scientists. Even the scientists. Because there's underdetermination. So, I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I, I think what you say is absolutely true. Um, I've covered this, uh, covered that in, in the show myself and everything. Um, one thing, okay, so one thing that I find interesting, you, you kind of hinted at this in what you were answering here, but um, 
and it kind of relates to the hiddenness of God as well. Like what, what is the, so God can relate to everyone where they're at kind of thing. It doesn't matter if you're stupid or smart or, you know, Einstein or, or me or something like that on the other end. But um, are there limitations on God's ability to, to reach out to everyone? Um, maybe not ones that are, well, yeah, let me just keep it open-ended. Do, do you think there are any kind of constraints or limitations Um you know, why, why isn't universalism true then or something like that? If, if God can reach everybody. Ooh, that's a, that's a deep question. So the first thing I thought of was if it is at the end of the day, a matter of volitional, if you refuse it, there's really nothing that God can do about it unless you're Calvinist, I guess. That's, that's the only thing. If he can override whatever your willing is to, you know, uh, unconditionally elect you, I guess he could do that if he wants. I don't, I don't have that concept of God. But okay, so let's stay with my concept of God. My concept of God, yeah, he can run into the will. If it's an evidential thing and the guy's ultimately going to be saved, that just kind of is consistent with my theory about evidence being diachronic. It's got to be diachronically appropriated over time. And there's nothing like, there's no evidence set I can put in front of somebody that can be like, there it is. And then they're just going to believe unless the evidence that I present is at the end of the dialectic process. I didn't even know it was at the end at, and God just used me to be at the very end. And this happens all the time. I just think it happens in a theological context. Like when you change your mind, when you change someone's minds in like politics or like a, convincing a mathematician to believe in a certain theorem, yeah, you have to develop the proof, but they have to epistemically appropriate the proof. They have to understand the proof. Even if there is a proof there, they have to, they have to appropriate it. And that takes time. And it could, it could take like five conferences with geniuses to finally get the guy to see the, the theorem or the proof or whatever. And it could be at that last point where, you know, let's just say, I don't know, Roger Penrose is like, well, not necessarily. If you carry the one right here, remember, you have to connect this two and this one and this one. And the guy just has a eureka moment and it's there. I think it happens in every domain, every academic domain, history. And in, in this particular domain, though, where sin is involved, you need the Holy Spirit. But I think the Holy Spirit uses certain things that are tailor made for each individual subject. As far as universal, universalism, like it, I don't. I don't know. I speculated about this. It's got to be consistent with the data of scripture. So if scripture uh, contradicts universalism, I, I can't go with it, but I haven't really undertaken the research project to, to, to uh, uh, research the verses that are debated back and forth about universalism. I don't know why I wouldn't hope for universalism to be true. Like if I miss something, I don't know, but hell is talked about a lot. A lot of great learned men believe that new Testament teaches it when I philosophically reflect on why it's not the case though, or why universalism is not the case, it's just like no amount of evidence is going to be good enough for people who just don't want to believe. Yeah. So then the next question is why were they created in the first place? Right. Um, so I don't know if I could speculate, well, here's the thing. Let's stop there. Let, let me say that. I don't know. Now, what do I do? Do I give up my Christian faith because I don't know the answer to that question? If I have a certain methodological disposition, or if I have a certain theological disposition, or if I have a certain like volitional kind of disposition, like I already believe in God, I already think God's smarter than me. I already think God is this great, perfect, perfect being, perfectly moral, spotless. I'm starting out. That's a part of my background knowledge. If I say I don't know, like why these people were created in the first place, does does that mean I, I have to reject God? No, I, I'm saying I still have faith in what He's doing. And I think he knows something I don't know, 
But at the end of the day, when I die, he's, he's going to explain everything and it's going to, I'm going to go, oh, okay. Yeah. That's, that's perfectly just, I don't know the answer to that yet. So what if someone doesn't share my background beliefs? What are they going to do with what I just said? Nothing. They can't do anything. Right. Somehow their will has to be changed and their background uh, beliefs have to change and their dispositions have to change. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how that works. The Holy Spirit just uses your words to change people. And if it's not their time to change, it's not their time to change. It sounds unfalsifiable, but it's not a strictly scientific hypothesis, but it's not a pseudoscience either. It's non-science. It's a different vision shaft. It's a different way to get knowledge. We're using completely different methods. Um, yeah. yeah. Completely separate debate about whether or not there can be different methods, which came up with my conversation with T-Jump. <laughs> but I, I haven't been given a good argument for me personally for uh, why there has to be um, a certain set of criteria that we have to satisfy to bring in other methods. But at the same time, it has to have the virtues that the methods of science already have. Because if they have the virtues that the methods of science already have, then it's just the scientific method again. And we don't have another method. So what's the criteria for, uh, of success for bringing in new methods? <laughs> I don't yeah. know. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no, I've, I've tried to. Sorry, to... I'm all over the place. Just... No, no, that's just cool. No, that, I've tried to explain okay. that, like that, you know, a lot of uh, scientists, scientists that go for scientism and stuff, they have, um, I'm probably going to screw it up. You'll know if I get it wrong. It's an internal philosophy of science versus an external philosophy of science where that's what you're uh, science kind of, is. of internal external questions um like you're, you're talking about uh, questions of science or questions of a, or about science about yeah like the methodology so it's kind of like it, oh, right. the features is kind of like oh it's it's um science it's a one-way street right science is the only discipline that informs and corrects every other discipline whereas External philosophy of science, if I've got that term correct, it might be the opposite, but um, they, they recognize, no, it's a two-way street. Other disciplines like philosophy can inform science. Oh, I know what you're saying, yeah. External pro conceptual problems, internal conceptual problems. Like, yeah, exactly. So like a perfect example of overlap, like both philosophy and science study time. Both philosophy and science study the, the, history, the, the, the cosmological history of the universe. So you got like philosophical arguments for the finitude of the universe. You have scientific models that have an origin of space-time at t equals zero. So they like overlap. But then you have like Sean Carroll's model or other models that have like past eternal stuff. But if the philosophical arguments work, yeah, uh, their models are consistent with the data. But we also have to take these philosophical arguments into, into account. So it, it, it invites a certain... Like, again, a methodological disposition to study the viability of these models in terms of whether or not they contradict these philosophical arguments. And if they do, then the way we should approach these models is, okay, we have to find where's, what's wrong with the model itself or what's wrong with the philosophical arguments, because they have overlapping subject, ma subject matter, overlapping magisteria, even though they have non-overlapping methods, but their methods are overlapping on a common subject matter. So it's just like, how do you do it? How do you adjudicate between the science and philosophy at that point? A lot of people just want to defer to science right away, which is, I mean, that's called methodological scientism. Uh, that's what it's called. I, I don't approach, I don't, I, I like an approach. I don't know if you ever heard me do this in my episodes, but I, I like this guy named Nicholas Rescher. He taught at Notre Dame. He had this one rule in this metaphilosophy book that he had. He's like, never approach philosophical questions or any kind of question with any kind of methodological like block, a, a stricture. Always approach phenomena or case or things on a case by case basis. And you tailor your method to the thing you're studying. So 
if you're always going to bring a hammer to every single problem, it's everything's going to look like a nail kind of thing. You yeah. know what I mean? But yeah. if you don't come with this mythological like spectacles, just blinding you to the variety of different domains that you can study in the world, then you can say, oh, well, this doesn't look like a domain that's appropriate for the scientific method. Let me see what this other method is. Oh, I see. I can get at this, this access to this domain using this method. So the scientific method. It just allows you a lot more creativity in studying the multifacetedness of, of nature. Exactly. Study, but Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't have said it better myself. Like, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. That, and you said it much better than I did. That's what I was um, trying to say in that. Um, let, me try, let, me try to be, let me try to be smart and screw it up here. But um, there's, a, there's a quote kind of backing you up by Walter Wink, um, who's a biblical scholar, if I remember correctly. And he, he kind of says something similar, right? Like if you bring this metaphysic, those who have a, a methodological bias will bring with them those methodological constraints to their studies and they'll thereby diminish it. Um, but because of that, uh, by something like that, it's kind of along the lines you were saying there. Um, yeah, if I'm, if I'm a methodological solipsist, what argument can you possibly give me for the external world? Like nothing, nothing's going to work. I'm a methodological solipsist. So yeah. why be a methodological anything? Like I, I would just approach things on a case by case basis. Like, okay, if you're not a methodological naturalist, how can you study history? Okay. Well, give me, give me an example of something Caesar crossing the Rubicon, like, I'm not going to invoke God. <laughs> like I'm not an idiot here. I'm not going to be like this methodological fairy dust person that says, "Oh, Caesar crossed the Rubicon because the fairy dust led him across." I'm not going to be an idiot. I'm going to I'm going to explain that with natural causes. Okay, Jesus rose from the dead. Okay, yeah, that's an, that's extraordinary. I agree with you. Let's test out the natural explanations. If they don't convince me, what do you want me to do? <laughs> I have the, the resurrection hypothesis now, and I, I was led there by seeing how methodological naturalism doesn't sufficiently explain it to me. And what do you want me to do? <laughs> okay, the consensus of scholarship in, in, the, in, the, in history doesn't agree with me. That gets in the sociological stuff about a lot of historians don't study the resurrection. So it's just not, there's no good statistical kind of uh, information on whether or not their opinion on it even matters because they're scholars in history. They might be scholars in historical methodology, but they haven't studied the evidence for the resurrection. So it seems like the only pe people that are actually like interested in studying that are either Christians or Jews or whatever, they have an ax to grind or whatever. But ideologically like neutral people, their, their area of specialization is gonna be like, I don't know, uh, the habits of commoners in the Roman empire or something. <laughs> so just because they get a PhD history by their name doesn't mean that they have a wealth of information about what, why the resurrection didn't happen. So that right there, that these extra like external questions, they really like put your mind at ease, like as far as people that say, so you're basically saying that the majority experts are wrong. Yeah, I am. So yeah, yeah. So the, the only thing they can do at that point is to freeze frame my face make a 20 second clip out of it, make me look like a moron to their sheep and their audience. Who care? I don't care. Do it. <laughs> That's going to do nothing for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't care. Exactly. I, I do my best to follow the truth. I, I, don't, I don't go for this uh, pure disagreement thing. I'm a steadfaster for sure. Um, oh yeah. Epistemic pure disagreement. Sweet. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. All right, cool. Um, all right. So, so let me go. You kind of mentioned the resurrection just before we get into that. Um, so you kind of mentioned some of your things, the experience of God, this is what caused you to believe in God and that sort of thing. 
Um, you kind of touched well, on cosmology. I chose to, I would say. You chose to, yep. I, I made a leap. You made that well, leap. I made a leap of faith. That is what it is at the end of the day. And if they want to make fun of me, I just don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I've committed my life to Christ and they can get over it. <laughs> yep. Uh, I think that's the attitude to have. A lot of people are so scared about not having an answer to from people who don't. It's a logical disposition to ever be convinced by anything you say back to them. So what should the church do at that point? Like, who cares? Like, continue to, to answer them, but... Anything they say shouldn't move you whatsoever because nothing we say is going to move them. So if we just do the same thing they're doing, why are they going to fall off? Right. I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> I think that's, that's right. That you stand your ground. Um, all right. well, in terms of like intellectual arguments uh, on the positive side for God's existence, then like um, what do you think are some of the, the best ones that. All of them. All of them. Okay. I, I like them all. Um, I like the argument from so many arguments. <laughs> That's another good argument. There's another essay that was written to all these unorthodox arguments coming out that were inspired by the, the two dozen or so uh, arguments for God's existence. They're like, okay, what are these other arguments? There are so many different arguments out there. Uh, I haven't researched them all, but they're all backed by pretty smart people. And literally, there's a book you can buy. It's got like, a, it's got a, uh, it's an ethics book. And I think it's like a, it's like a type of history philosophy book. And it's got like just the arguments or something like that. And they put all these arguments in premise to conclusion form. And as far as quality, I'm looking at these arguments, like these look just like the arguments I find in natural theological books. Why are, why are the, why are the books of natural theology? Like if I had as many arguments for God's existence uh, as for like moral anti-realism or the existence of a number or I don't know, uh, the appropriate way to do phenomenology or something like that, I'd be like, oh my gosh, I have the best artillery ever. The only thing a critic can say back is, well, 100 leaky buckets are still 100 leaky buckets. Okay, well, that's, that's their assessment of it. That's not mine. Why does my assessment of the arguments have to change? Because their assessment is different. You know what I mean? I think they're all good. I think they're all great. Yeah, that's going to make me look like a partisan, but I don't care. Why doesn't it make them look like a partisan against what I believe? It just cuts both ways. <laughs> I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. I, don't know. I, I can't think of a bad argument for God's existence. Uh, let me see. I, there has been some that have kind of been weird. What, what do you think? The, of only, oh, the, only, the only motive that I have for pointing out, like one that doesn't convince me, is to make myself look more objective to the audience. And I'm already suspicious of that. I just want to be honest and be like, maybe I am dumb and they all look good. <laughs> they all look great to me. I don't know why. Awesome. awesome. It makes me look like Fox News or something. I don't know. <laughs> all right, cool. Yeah, no, that that's fine. If you, like I said, it's about truth. So if you find all, every argument that you've seen convincing, so be it. That's what I wanted to know. Some more um, convincing than others. Like the ontological, the modal ontological argument is like a slam dunk for me. Uh, for me. Yeah, same. Here. I don't know. That looks that looks good to me. I know it's. I enjoy talking to people that I enjoy talking to fideists. I really do. They think that these arguments, I think Wes Morrison might be one. He, he like, they don't think any of the arguments work at all, but they still believe. Yeah. So what do you do with these people? There's no good reason to believe God exists, like in the sense of arguments, right? Mm -hmm. I think they think something from the experience, but if you were to put the experience in argumentative form, they wouldn't like that. Yeah. But they still believe. So what do we do with these people? What book bucket do we put these people in? I guess they're completely irrational to evidentialist type people. I don't know. Yeah, I, well, that's what I, that's what I would say. It's kind of thing is it's you should suspend judgment if that's literally what you should what you think kind of deal. But um, yeah, 
Right. So, so you like the ontological. We're the same, same on, on that front. I think the ontological. Kalam's good. I did some response uh, videos to Fodor. I think Fodor just, I, I'm listening to Fodor and I'm like, I don't understand. I just don't, I don't, I'm trying to be nice. I don't get it. <laughs> I am the person that's dumb. He is smart. I am dumb. I just don't see what he sees. I really don't. Like there was a, there was a video that he did on the extent of the present. I just felt like he completely misrepresented Craig completely. Like it was way off, but that's what everybody says that already agrees with the position the critics critiquing, right? You're misrepresenting them. So it's just like, sometimes it's, you get lost in dialectic here because you know I mean? everybody says the same thing about everybody else they disagree with. <laughs> sometimes it's nice at the end of the day, just to listen to the audiobook of scripture and just relax on your hammock, <laughs> take a break from the argument. <laughs> it's all right? yeah. <laughs> you know? Awesome. All right, cool. Um, all right. So, so yeah, so that kind of tells me like where you're coming from in terms of the, the ontological argument. Did you want to take like a few minutes? I, I know you kind of had like an argument from desire that you were doing a video. All on. right, right. Did, did you want to kind of? Yeah, so that came from this guy. This is a really thick book by a guy named Adam Barkman. Okay. It's called C.S. Lewis Philosophy as a Way of Life and Philosophy as a Way of Life a comprehensive historical examination of his philosophical thoughts. He's got a chapter here on heavenly desire. And I remember being like, why has no Lewis scholar ever conceptually investigated this concept of, of desire as it appears in Lewis the way Barkman has? And this was published in 2009, I think. I gotta be careful because the spine's coming off. And when I researched the literature on the argument from desire, it seems like the majority of the people that talk about this is as an argument from natural desire. So it's almost like an argument for proper function, like plan again, proper function. It's just like, okay, you got this faculty in your, uh, in your like a desire faculty in you or something. And if it, if it functions properly, if it's a natural desire, it's got an object that satisfies it. And then you go to particular examples of natural desires like water, sex and all this stuff. And it's just like, okay, yeah. Suppose for a second, all the food disappeared off the face of the planet, right? And you still have this natural desire for, of hunger for this object. So the object doesn't exist, but you were designed to feed off this thing and you're gonna die one day, I guess. Now, in reality, that's not the case, but it, 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 Lewis does address this. He's like, it does prove that you come from a species that repairs itself by eating, right? So, but the thing is, the, the, the main premise is there are existent objects for types of natural desires, not necessarily uh, desire tokens. And I like the way that desire, that argument goes. And that's the way it's been talked about in the literature ad nauseum. But then when I started reading continental philosophy, I ran into this thing called phenomenology. And the more I read Lewis's descriptions of this desire, and the more I read about phenomenology, I was like, Lewis is doing phenomenology in here. So why has nobody talked about either Lewis as a phenomenologist or had a phenomenological kind of interpretation of this argument for desire? or whether or not a phenomenologist can even appropriate the terminology argument from desire, because that's like an analytic way of talking almost. Mm -hmm. So I went to philpapers.com and I found this dissertation <laughs> that was written, I think in the nineties at like the bottom of the Walmart bin <laughs> of, the, of the dissertations I found at the very bottom. And it's called, what's it called? Phenomenological, uh, what's it called? Let me bring this up actually. This is important. Uh, research paper from Desire. Yeah, I can make it. This is, I just made notes it. Here. You can share your screen if you want to. It's totally up to you. Oh, how do you do that? 
Uh, just you see the like at the bottom the share screen button. Uh, oh yeah, sweet. Let me see here. Let you know if it pops uh, up. Let me see. So here's my notes. Share. So does it say taxonomy at the top or something? Taxonomies of desire, the object of desire. Okay. So these are just my my notes here, real quick. Let me see. It is called. Uh, it's buried in here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I had this memorized. Oh, there it is. Soroko. Mm -hmm. I have to contact her if she's still alive. I have no idea if she's still alive, actually. Yeah, I've never heard but of her. But where's her dissertation? Let me. Soroko. Yeah, there it is. Sorry. Philosophical influences in the writing. Oh, I'm sorry. Phenomenological influences in the writings of C.S. Lewis. So I was like, what? What? Because your worst nightmare when you're reading a, when you're writing a paper is has, has somebody already written on this? And I was like, no, somebody's already done it. <laughs> well, she does uh, compare Lewis's method in particular contexts of his writings with the method of the uh, Munich school of phenomenology, it's called, okay. where they're, they're, they appropriate Husserl's method before he had this thing called a transcendental turn back to Kant or whatever. I, I won't get into that, but where you can actually appropriate his method to access the essences of things. So it, essences are what makes a thing what it is. I mean, you're actually coming into unmediated contact with reality when you, when you uh, cognize essences. So I, I won't get into the details of that, but if Lewis is doing this, I don't think anybody's ever done this before. And a phenomenolo phenomenology in this particular domain is a legit way to get at particular aspects of reality. then I think I got a pretty good, a pretty good argument for God's existence. Like a, a, like a branch of religious experience type arguments that has have this kind of desire flavor. Because I, I believe desire is one of the, like for the people that experience it, like in its most rich and, and acute forms, it could be the most powerful thing you ever experienced. But Lewis does say like, because of what the nature of desire is, he wonders if anyone has ever desired anything else. So everything everything in your life that you've desired has been like, an unknown description of God. Like you've, you've understood God under a different description. So like, if you really like, I don't know, uh, you have a, a hobby where you go out on a, on a lake and, and ride your boat. And I'm like, what do you like about that? I like the wind in my hair. I like the freedom of it. I like to hear the, the water against the boat. So if you were to unpack that phenomenologically, you're unpacking aspects of what it is that make God attractive to humans. And so I think our concept of God is just really denoted, denuded. It's just very, it's just like, dude, Zeus-like figure in the clouds is going to judge us one day. When it really is just the object of our deepest desires in our heart of hearts. And that would, that, that'll actually make um, God attractive because it makes it, it makes it more existentially kind of proximate to what we're searching for in our heart of hearts in, in terms of the human condition, in terms of the meaning of life and all this stuff. Whereas the history of the universe, the fine tuning and the, the moral argument, all that stuff can be kind of abstract desires, kind of more concrete. Morality is concrete too, but a lot of these are kind of kind of put into premise conclusion form and all this stuff. And it kind of can feel divorced from actual experience. Whereas when you engage in a phenomenological description, you're actually seeing, you're actually, it, what phenomenological descriptions do is they arouse in your mind the kind of cognitive state you had when you actually experienced the things that weren't, when, when they were not mediated by language. So it gets as close as you can possibly get. 
So if like, uh, for example, let me, let me actually do this. Let me stop share. Let me share this passage real quick. I'm going to say that people have probably already read this, but I'm just going to while you're pulling that up. It's fascinating too, because we come from like two different kind of philosophical schools. I'm, you're more in the continental. Uh, I didn't start out there though. I really didn't. Oh, sorry. You didn't start out. I, I didn't, I, I didn't start out there at all. I, I really didn't. I came to this like really late, but like I think within the last six, seven years. But I think that that's cool because most people are familiar with arguments for God or Christianity, for more like analytic philosophy type debates. Whereas no, there, there could be good reasons to believe in God or that sort of thing from a different school of philosophy and that sort of thing. So I think it's cool. Yeah, a lot of analytics will make fun of continentals and continentals will make fun of analytics. And there's this kind of divide, but there's a lot of bridge building lately. There's a lot of like continental analyses of concepts of, that the analytics have, have liked or methods that analytics have preferred or ways of writing that the analytics have preferred. Analytics accuse continentals of being obscure in their writing, which isn't always necessarily isn't always necessarily the case, but there's a certain domain of continentals that are kind of too political for me. Like they'll, they'll make everything about politics. I, I don't like that. I like it when it's existential purely, but, um, but the phenomenology, what Husserl was trying to do with phenomenology at first is actually really cool. So for example, what really attracted me to Husserl at first was you got this perennial philosophical question about the distinction between appearance and reality, right? It's like, okay, you got appearance and you got this curtain and it blocks reality and we can't get by it. And one of the fundamental insights of phenomenology is that um, they reconceptualize that bifurcation, that, that, that curtain. They say, it isn't like a curtain that's completely impenetrable. We have no idea what's beyond it, like what Kant said, and thing in itself, thing as appears to be all that crap. What, what Husserl said is that actually you are, you are experiencing reality. Reality presents itself through appearances. That was like a, that was a liberation to me. I, I was just like, oh, cool. So, you know, I'm not looking at my computer's molecular structure. I'm looking at it as it appears to me, but the reality, reality of whatever I'm perceiving is, is uh, revealing itself through this appearance. So I almost like, you know how you look at a window of a plane and you see all these little squares that make up the farmland? You know what I mean? Have you ever been up in a plane? Of course, yeah, a few times. That's what I see in normal perception. Like when I look at this mic the microphone right here, I'm, I'm like looking at it from like 20,000 feet in the air. Like if I got really close to it, I could see the, the molecules and the quantum stuff going on and stuff like that. But I'm really seeing the microphone as it really is through this appearance. The appearance isn't blocking the reality of the microphone. It's revealing itself to me through the appearance. So that, that inversion that Husserl brought up yeah. first, I think. I think he was inspired by different people, but I was just like, oh, I like that. So why can't that happen with desire? Why can't God reveal himself through the appearances that are evoked when you experience these desires, these really strong desires like this? So I'll go share screen. So I remember being a, a freshman in college in 2001 and reading this for, for the first time and not knowing why this moved me so much. So this is in the problem of pain, the heaven chapter. Have you read this? Uh, probably problem of pain no i haven't actually so listen this is a phenomenon this is a phenomenological description okay you may think that there's another reason for our silence about heaven namely that we do not really desire it 
but that may be an illusion. What I am now going to say is merely an opinion of my own without the slightest authority, but which I submit to the judgment of better Christians and better scholars than myself. Way too humble. <laughs> there have been times when I think we do not desire heaven, but more often I find myself wondering whether in our heart of hearts we've ever desired anything else. You may have noticed the books you really love are bound together by a secret thread. You know very well what is the common quality that makes you love them, that you cannot put it into words, but most of your friends don't, don't see it at all and often wonder why, liking this, you should also like that. Again, you've stood before some landscape which seems to embody what you've been looking for all your life and then turn to the, turn to the friend at your side who appears to be seeing what you saw, but at the first words, a golf yawns between you and you realize that this landscape means something totally different to him, that he is pursuing an alien vision and cares nothing for the ineffable suggestion by which you are transported. Even in, their hobby, in your hobbies, has there not always been some secret attraction which the others are curiously ignorant of? Something not to be identified with, but always on the verge of breaking through? The smell of cut wood in a workshop or the clap clap of water against the boat's side? Are not all lifelong friendships born at the moment when at last you meet another human being who has some inkling, but faint and uncertain even in the best, of that something which you were born desiring and which beneath the flux of other desires and in all the momentary silences between the louder passions, night and day, year by year, from childhood to old age, you are looking for, watching for, listening for? You've never had it. All the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of it, tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. But if it should really become manifest, if there ever came an echo that did not die away, but swelled into the, into the sound itself, you'd know it. Beyond all possibility of doubt, you would say, here at last is the thing I was made for. We cannot tell each other about it. It's the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work, and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. While we are, this is, if we lose this, we lose all. Okay. In all the books you've ever read in philosophy of religion and analytic philosophies, anything ever moved you like that paragraph has? Um, I'm, I, yeah, see, this is my problem. I'm pretty, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sorry. I'm trying to put on you, but look, if it doesn't move you, that actually substantiates my point. Look at this, where it says, look, I, I'm, we're, we're both standing before this landscape and embodies what I've been looking for all my life. I turn to you at my side who appears to be seeing what I saw, but at the first words of golf yawns between us and you, and, and the landscape means something totally different to you than it does to me. So. Like you can go to certain things that moved you in your life. Yeah. And it kind of substantiates the main point of the paragraph. But what I'm saying is what Lewis is doing right here, this isn't analytical argumentation. This is phenomenological description. And there's something that happens for the people, to the people that the phenomenological description does reach. Um, what, what's happening is that they're actually having unmediated contact with the essence of what it means to have this desire. And what, and what happens when you have unmediated access to those essences is that the appearances that you experience, reality will come in and you'll meet reality unmediated. And so that's what these descriptions are trying to occasion. Mm -hmm. Truth truth is uh, corresponds to reality, but these phenomenological descriptions are reality that truth is about. So I like kind of that chiasma there. Um, so it kind of bypasses the, the way truth mediates reality gets at the reality itself through the description. It's, it's mediated, but it's supposed to arise in your consciousness, a kind of experience that's akin to what you would have if you weren't mediated by the description. And that's the closest you get from grasping actual essences. So it's through that method of contacting reality almost in an almost unmediated way where it, it can change your beliefs. So why not call this an argument for the existence of something? 
because it's an actual aspect of reality itself. So that aspect has to exist, right? I'm open for correction on this, but that just seems to me to be unassailable. And it seems to me to be more certain than any conclusion I would ever get out of an abstract philosophical argument for anything. I'm more sure of this desire than I am about the finitude of the universe on the basis of the metaphysical impossibility of of an actual infinite via successive addition. <laughs> I agree with it, but I'm not as sure of that as I am of this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, It's way more intimate for me. So that's kind of the way. I don't know. Do you, do you, There's only so much I can make. Curiosity. So like what level with this would you say? Because So I'm a weirdo kind of thing. I, I'm kind of famous that um, I assign, the way I came to faith um, is I kind of, you know, looked at each individual argument, positive, negative evidences for and against God or for and against Christianity, whatever it is. And I would assign subjective probability values to those. Bayesian, Bayesian kind of things. Yeah. Yep. And I would plug that into Bayes. Yeah. I came out 53.14% in 2018. Sweet. And I like it. <laughs> uh, so, so that's my sort of story. So I'm sort of curious at your level with this, this argument from desire from a phenomenological perspective, would you say, look, you're certain you have 100% absolute certainty that God exists through this? Is it that powerful? Is there any room for doubt? Like, what would you say? Yeah, I think it's room for doubt. Like I said, so I, so if I were to make um, like kind of theory about <clears throat> like a loose, loose, loose theory about what it is to have beliefs or what it is to base my beliefs on experiences, I do think it's compatible. Like these, these experiences are compatible with ebbs and flows and waxes and wanes of moods and psychological kind of states that you go through depression. Like for me, I experience doubts when I like change uh, environment. Like I'll be really connected to this environment and like I'll move or whatever. And it just feels weird. And like, I'll start getting doubts for weird reasons. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with the arguments. Maybe I'm weak or something. I don't know. No, it's no, it's, it's, it's like, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 go for it. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, so, so my friend Gary Habermas, he, he kind of differentiates, there's different types of doubts, right? So you're kind of having yeah. emotional doubt, whereas emotional, okay. yeah, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're all human beings. Yeah. Unless you're like a Spock, it's just like, do you, does your credence level never change ever? Like, it's like, <laughs> really are you, if it doesn't, that's actually, I think, uh, a gift. <laughs> if you, if you get it's a certain point where you're Christian and your credence level is just cemented like despite anything that happens in your life, you are, you are the man. <laughs> yeah. But I think for the rest of us, normal humans out here, I think certain things happen in our lives. Like that will just be like, huh, that's kind of weird. And then your credence level will go down a little bit. You don't give up the belief. It just goes down a little bit. So the doubt kind of suppresses it, but that's normal. Cause the next step I have is that will literally happen with every single belief that I have ever <laughs> So I'm not going to discard it just because in this particular instance, the credence level went out, went down because of the, uh, the context sensitive doubt that I had on the basis of whatever experience I'm having, but I don't know. So you just kind of like got to train yourself after a while, probably doing different dif- disciplines. If, if this is a problem for for anybody in the audience, just to kind of expect it, go to God when you're in the middle of it. If you can't feel God, when you go to God, go to God anyway, keep going. Just get up, keep getting up, train yourself in the habit, keep getting up. Now, for people that don't agree with us, we're deluded. We're compl- we look silly. Why not just give it up? But then they're gonna, you're going to think the same thing about them, and it, it cancels each other out, so that shouldn't bother you either. So just keep going. It's great. Their stuff leads to nihilism. 
Maybe not yet, but give it some time. Out of, out of curiosity, um, so this isn't what I had planned, but I, I just want to ask you quickly because I'm interested on in your take. So like um, I, I took an epistemology class with Dr. Liz Jackson and we have kind oh, of- Oh yeah, she's awesome. Yeah. She is, yeah, she's a great, great prof and everything as well. So, um, I don't think she's ever been in a bad mood in her life. <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. Yeah, at least not publicly or anything. But <laughs> um, awesome. Yeah. So, so like we kind of have a difference of opinion. I'm wondering about your take. So like with an, on an evidential yeah. perspective, obviously I've kind of revealed the game, right? Like I waited until I have this sufficiency threshold. So like, oh, if it's more than 50%, you believe it, you apportion belief accordingly. Uh, if it mm-hmm. falls below that threshold, you should disbelieve it or suspend judgment. Um, Liz Jackson, on the other hand, she would say, well, it's, it's not that simple. There isn't like a sufficiency, one sufficiency threshold that applies in all cases. So I'm wondering like, where, where would you stick on that? Like, is, is it possible to lose your faith if, if the credence level goes down to a certain extent or yeah, like, what do you make of that? I would take that whole situation as almost a reductio out of sort of a pure evidentialism for me. Um, because I think there's more to, I'm just going from my experience. Like if I were to dip to 1%, I wouldn't give up the belief when it comes to God. Now, when it came to like, whether or not there's a tree outside, I'd give it up. But when it comes to God, I just wouldn't give it up. I've already made the leap of faith. I'm expecting it to go wherever. I made a commitment to God. And I said, look, if I feel like you don't exist and, and like my credence level for your existence is at 0.00001, I'm still going to believe. I'm never going to give up the belief ever. And is that, so, I'm like an awe rationalist when it comes to that. <laughs> and, and the way I conceptualize it too, it's just like, let's just say like, um, I have this way of, of looking at it where if all this evidence came out that my wife cheated on me and I just continued to believe that she didn't. And then I found out at the end of my life that she really didn't. I wonder what my wife would think of me if I gave up on her, like in the process of it. So I kind of conceptualize that with my relationship with God. It's just like, I've only been around, let's just say I'm an old guy and I've been around for 80 years out of, you know, 16, well, how old is the universe? 16 point, whatever billion years old. That's 13 point. It's like, yeah, yeah 13.6 or whatever. Oh, I was off by billions. Whoops. <laughs> um, You're an old. I'm going to feel, I'm going to feel weird if, Oh crap! I should have still believed it was just, it was a test. So the way I conceptualize the entire like relationship of how I form my beliefs and God's existence and all that stuff, it's kind of I've kind of rigged the deck on purpose so that I stay in. But descriptively, I've never fallen below like ninety. But I I I believe in the counterfactual that if it were one percent, I still would believe. So that means I'm deluded, right? <laughs> well, well. So, so I guess like something like Liz Jackson would say, you kind of hint like there's the practical reasoning aspect or whatever, right? Like you, the benefit. Yeah, it's being meta. Yeah, relationship. Uh, make it so that yeah, it, the sufficiency threshold would be one percent would be good enough, or to be rational and believing, or something like that. So yeah, but it, let me let me be, let me be clear. I think the one percent would actually have to become would have to come after it was at ninety. Like when I was when I when I first committed my life, life to Christ, it was like at a hundred. Hmm. Like I don't know if I don't know if it's even psychologically possible for someone to make that initial step at one percent, even the fetus. I just think the PDS are just saying, look, I don't want, I don't need any arguments to affect my credence levels, but that doesn't mean my credence level isn't at hundred. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go for it. I'm doing it. Just like everybody does with every belief. 
because even with your your uh, calculations, your Bayesian calculations, it seems like um, because it's a species of subjective probability, yeah. there's always the risk that the way you've calculated the thing is wrong. What are your credence levels as far as the, the meta level kind of things that you did in order to input your calculations into the Bayesian output and all that stuff? It's like, why are they the way they are? And do you trust your methodology of, of weighing the pros and cons for how you did it properly? And it's like, you just keep on zooming out and zooming out and, are, and, and it, you might get to a point where, huh, I haven't done that yet. So if I haven't done that yet, how do I know that my Bayesian calculations are correct? And I think you're going to be fine as far as whatever you think your subjective probabilities are. I think that's fine. But if you were to bump into somebody who's not an evidentialist like you, they might make you zoom out or something to, to see where your evidentialism leads you or something like that, just to prove that I don't have to go down your evidentialist route. But if it makes you comfortable, please do it. I don't want to be a stumbling block. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, yeah, no, I find this <clears throat> when we disagree, we, we're on the same team kind of thing. I want to uh, understand. And this is all meta. This is all meta. And then I would be but, like, oh, let's do it. Because then if I talk to you about the ins and outs of how you did it, I might come to see like, wow, that's really awesome. I'm going to, that'd really help me. Thank you for, for uh, edifying me with the way you do your belief formation. And you actually convinced me and I'm at 53%. This is, this is great, baby. <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> let, let me ask you this, because I, believe it or not, I would argue um, that I don't even need to get into those. People don't even need to get into those meta discussions necessarily. And here's why. Yeah. Here, here's awesome. why. Because God is a factor here, right? So God would prevent any person who who's a real seeker. So that's kind of a technical term, right? It just means you're you're open-minded to the truth, you're you're mm -hmm. sincerely seeking the truth, uh, and you're willing yeah. to follow it and obey it. That's it. Um, kind of thing. Then God has the responsibility to ensure that whatever judgments I make, um, as long as I'm a real seeker and I'm rationally justified, um, if I have that much, then at least on these issues, he would ensure that I'm, I've got not necessarily the truth, but the beliefs that he wants me to have to achieve my ultimate purpose in creation until new evidence comes in. And I, I follow that evidence kind of thing. So I almost don't even have to worry about, well, what if I find out 50 years from now, I, I find a new piece of data and that, changes things well well this is the way i see it now so this is god would prevent what i call undue confusion um but yeah you're the guest so let me th throw it to you like what what about god's role in no yeah i was listening that sounds good uh my mind what my mind does immediately is i need to know the prior probability of god's existence for it to factor in to fix the other bayesian calculations the way they are in terms of the 53 percent but then it's weird for me to get into what the prior probability of God's existence is without it being supplemented by the arguments from natural theology. Mm -hmm. But then they have their own Bayesian calculations, I think, or yeah. their own kind of probabilities to them too. So it's hard for me not to zoom out if I don't if I'm, I don't share your background beliefs from the from the threshold. Gotcha. That's just me, though. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right on that. Like, so that. But if it helps you, honestly, keep it. I hate, I hate stumbling other people and how they, they come to their beliefs. I've done that before when I was like in my twenties and I, I feel horrible about it. It's just like, I like the parts in mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis is about to talk about the Holy spirit or the Trinity. I think it was. And he's like, if this doesn't help you just skip these chapters. I think I agree with that approach. Gotcha. Like a lot of people, a lot of people don't need to be going into everything. If it's a stumbling block, if it's a, if it's theoretical exploration, I'm, I'm for everything. I think everything's fair game. Yeah. But yeah.
No, I, I think I believe it or not, I, I agree with you. So I haven't stumbled on the existence of God so that I make oh, sweet. an 11 premise argument. I think there you would need to be warranted, but I, at the level of like Christian evidence is, oh, we've already established God exists. He's got certain motivations, blah, 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 kind of thing. So yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Last. And I think it's, it's a part, it's one of my background beliefs. One of my background beliefs is the fact that the vast majority of the people on the earth have no idea how to do these probability calculations and they're still fully warranted in believing in God's existence. So that's one of my background beliefs. Same. Ironically, it's so weird that that itself, they, they have no idea natural theology at all. They don't know about philosophy of religion at all, but that data point is like a background belief in my mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like, I don't need these arguments for believing this. Maybe any more, maybe they'll play a, a role at the beginning. And they're fascinating to explore like the logical space of them, like after you're born again, or if the Holy Spirit leads you to talk to someone who's only stumbling block is some kind of problem that they're having with one argument for God's existence. It could be thrilling to say, oh, look, this is the way this argument works. And here's a good argument for it. And they're like, oh, yeah, I see it now. And that's a real seeker, I guess you could say. Yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> Very good. But it, I think a lot of people conceptualize natural theology and the philosophical dialogue going on between Christians and non-Christians as some kind of speed chess game where there's going to be like a point in the game where you just mate your opponent and it just doesn't work like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's more, it's more WWE and entertainment stuff. And it's just kind of, eh. yeah. 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 I, yeah, I definitely see where you're coming from. All right. Um, the last question I want to ask you about God in general, then at this point, before we turn to like Christians specific uh, type stuff, but so for me, believe it or not, the, the most important uh, doubt to my belief in God in general kind of thing was the evil God challenge. Um, I don't know if you're, are you familiar with that at all or? In the context of the ontological argument or? Um, well, so, so the evil God challenge in general is, is kind of so specific. There's different versions of it. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I think that the weak version is the best, which uh, basically just says, look, all the all the arguments for God's existence, um, ontological argument, cosmological, whatever. Um, moral, sure. That that can, might maybe that prove moral, moral, argument. moral argument. Well, there's some debate whether that's an asymmetrical <laughs> argument, but the the claim is by the atheists they'll say, look, it's equal. Whether it's a real maximally great being or a good God, or does that prove a real maximally evil being or a, a evil God? And they'll say, look, it's symmetrical either way. None of these arguments help you decide. Uh, you're not justified or warranted in, in privileging a good God over thing. What I do at the very beginning of all this stuff is I always assume I'm the dumb one and they need to show me the light. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's literally the way I always start out here. Even when I have the Calvinism discussions, I'm always like, I don't understand Calvinism. I don't understand anything. I'm dumb. Go talk to your doctor. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> When I talk about, when I think about the concept of maximal greatness, which is being maximally excellent in all possible worlds, maximal excellence being omnipotence, omniscience, and omnibenevolence. The only reason why for me, this evil God objection gets up off the ground is because there's a clash of intuitions. I think that's the only thing. So yeah, evil can manifest itself in a cross world type way. Like uh, you have a, a being that's evil in every possible world. Yeah, they're maximally great in in the sense that they display this modal property being uh, evil in every possible world okay so now we have to like amend this okay it's not maximally excellent anymore 
Because what I mean by excellence, I've semantically fixed the concept excellence to denote the properties of omnipotence, omniscience, and omnibenevolence. <laughs> so either we're going to equivocate or you're going to give me a new word here. So maximal, maximal non-excellence, I guess, is the, is the word here. <laughs> well, yeah. That would, be, that would be evil, right? So we need a different concept for that. Um, um, right. Malevolence. I don't know, but <laughs> or something like I'm the, I'm the, I'm the malevolence. Let's just say sure. now. Okay. So now I back up and I say, okay, why did I choose benevolence and omniscience and omnipotence? Okay. And then I, and then I think in my mind, okay. Cause they're great. They're great making. Okay. What do you mean by great making? They make the being greater than it would be without it. Okay. Uh, okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm just fixing the semantics of my concepts right now. So now the evil God objection is given to me. Okay. Is evil a great making property? No, 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 no. It's not a great making property. It's a, it's a, what, what can I say? A, a less making property or something. <laughs> yeah. It's, right. Let's say it's an evil. Okay. So it's a less making property. Okay. So let's go with that concept. It's, it's, it's maximally evil. Um, okay. So what does evil mean? for these evil God objections, because I always bump up against the wall of conceptually understanding evil properly. And if you, if you gotta, if you gotta understand the concept of evil in a certain way as, as uh, ontological deprivation, it's gonna be really hard to avoid any good when you maximize evil. Yeah. So do they think evil is a substance in itself? Maybe. Um, so, so that's the thing, like uh, across um, evil God challengers, it depends the, the one of the problems is there's no, standard definition like what do you mean by evil gods and stuff like that so yeah. it, it all just depends on who you're who you're reading there's no consistency for them to show me out of the labyrinth they have to show me why it's incorrect to metaphysically understand evils as a as a as parasitic on good because if evil's parasitic on good metaphysically speaking then it's almost incoherent to have a maximally evil being that exists because existence is a good so yeah. they, uh, evil would be parasitic on good in that sense. So for it to be maximal evil, it would, it would just wouldn't exist. So it seems like they have to bring to the table some kind of preconceived theory of, of the relationship between good and evil, some, some metaphysical theory about that in order to get that objection off the ground, to show me my way out of the labyrinth. Because the way I understand the concepts is that existence better for something to exist than not to exist. It, so a being that's maximally evil won't exist because it's a good to exist, right? Gotcha. They have to attack my intuitions regarding that. Intuition-driven research programs are always going to be kind of mushy uh, around the borders. Mm -hmm. But I think that you can, you can strengthen the center of it. And, you know, you have these auxiliary hypotheses that kind of orbit distantly or whatever. But at, at the center of it, I'm pretty sure that existence is a, is a good thing. Mm -hmm. It's better to exist than not to exist. Mm -hmm. That's kind of one of the reasons why murder is wrong. <laughs> it's just like, you're unjustifiably taking away somebody's right to exist. Why? Existence is a good thing. So it's like maximally evil. You think about some, like, what does that even mean? Like somebody that's continually or perpetually burning people in the gas chamber or, or what? Like, like, I don't even know what that means. So yeah. a, a never ending, these things are coming through some kind of uh, Marvel uh, portal in the sky, a never ending funeral pyre for you to, continually torture people and rend children from their parents and what does that even mean yeah maximally good i understand i understand that perfectly i can see that maximally evil though that sounds so strange to me yeah yeah but that yeah. could be a failure of my imagination honestly no it makes sense no this is this is definitely but it's good for them they need to convince me now i, I don't understand
understand what they're talking about. Maximal evil. I don't even know what that means. Exactly. I really it don't. Be, it has to be a coherent. Oops. Are you you still there? Uh, yeah. It has, it has yeah. To be I'm here. Coherent concept and stuff. So awesome. Yeah. Cool. I, I was just sort of that was kind of a selfish question because that's what I'm working. Well, no, and the thing is, it's connected to maximal greatness. It's connected to it. It's just like okay, you exist in every possible world. That's a good thing. That's a modal perfection to exist in all possible worlds, right? Yeah. It would be, it would be, they would be worse off modally speaking if they didn't exist in all possible worlds. So it, it's a good thing for them to exist in all possible worlds. So if it's maximally evil, it would exist in no possible worlds, right? Gotcha. We got to talk about moral evil, modal deficiencies, which is, I guess, a kind of weird way to say evil, but I guess it's not morally evil. It's modally deficient in some way. So I don't know. I, I'd have to think about that, but it just doesn't make sense to me on the face of it, prima facie, but cool. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And this is one of the- I'd have to talk it, talk it out with them. I don't know. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, cool. Yeah, I just wanted to get your kind evil of- Evil God. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd have to think about it. Cool. Cool. All right. Awesome. Um, all right. So, so let's change gears looking to Christianity specifically, um, unless you have any objections. But uh, yeah, so I, I think you mentioned that the resurrection um, was one of the evidences that spoke to you. The, the naturalistic hypotheses um, didn't work in, in your books or something. So yeah, I don't know. Do you want to like give any more details in terms of the historical evidence for the resurrection? Do you think you've I just think it's really easy. I, I think it's really easy. Like if you're already kind of disposed to think Jesus rose from the dead, then you're going to think these other explanations are always going to be less probable than the resurrection hypothesis. I was, I literally looked at the evidences after I became a Christian, just to be completely honest. And it might've colored the way I looked at the evidence, but I don't think it made me completely stupid when I considered the other options. Mm -hmm. Like I considered the other options, like the body being stolen. And, and these are years ago, I, I investigated this years ago. So I have to go back and, and kind of remind myself why I was, I was reading through this being like, what, then why didn't this happen? Like, what's your explanation for that? It just becomes more and more ad hoc. The more you try to explain why these natural explanations got through, like the body stolen, the twin brother hypothesis, the alien thing. Um, he didn't really die. Like what are the other naturalistic hallucination that doesn't explain the empty tomb. It's just like, I, I don't know. It just gets really convoluted looking at it from uh, like, uh, from the standpoint of it's gotta be a natural explanation. So then I just became more interested in the methodology of it again. I'm always interested in that. It's just like, if you're methodologically confined to natural explanations, then the, then the miraculous one is always going to be the least probable. It's just, you're going to be stuck there. So why do you have the method the way they are? Like the, I think once we become like apologists about the resurrection, we become little mini historians. So we have to become a historian. So the way I do history is Again, I tailor my methods to what it is I'm studying. So a lot of people think like, oh, you're going to believe in the resurrection on the basis of the evidence? Then why don't you believe that, that the miracles of Islam? Then why don't you believe the miracle of Mormonism? Because the evidence doesn't support it. It's really easy. <laughs> this is like, I don't have to have a methodological stricture in order for me to say, look, okay, I'm open to, I'm open to it being a miracle, right? About how Joseph Smith did his thing or uh, Allah or Muhammad did his thing with the Quran or any other miracle story you possibly can put on the table for me. So why don't you believe it then? Because there's not enough evidence for me to believe it. But when I look at the resurrection, there's a lot of evidence. <laughs> like it's not that hard for me. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even going to sound like a scholar. It's just like, look, 
there's a lot of evidence for it. I don't have a methodological block when I study the evidence. And so it's really, really probably rose from the dead. I don't understand what you want me to do, man. <laughs> they, just, they have this Pandora's box objection. It's just like, well, if you believe it here, then you believe it everywhere. Well, guess what? I also have background beliefs about a demonic realm. They can perform miracles. So why do I automatically have to have the uh, Islamic interpretation of the Muslim miracle? Like if Christianity is true, there's a perfectly good explanation for why that miracle happened. Uh, what Muhammad thought was an angel was really a demon and they like to deceive. This is all a part of the package of Christianity, the theory, if you want to look at it as a theory. The theory accommodates all of that stuff. So it's not a defeater to it. I don't know. But me, if, if you if, God, if we had if we had four independent <laughs> like biographies and like the letters of Paul for any other historical event, get the methodological strictures out of the way. Nobody would nobody would care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> would believe it. Yeah, yeah, no, I I totally agree. Uh, I mean, there's like this double. So you're a Bayesian. You're a Bayesian guy. Did you read Carrier's argument against the, the existence of Jesus? Did he do it right? I heard a lot of Bayesian guys are like, no, Carrier's way off in the way he's appropriating this calculus. Um, so yeah, so I so I haven't read his book proper, but I've I've read like reviews of it and his blog, like responding and stuff like that. So no, I haven't read it directly. Um in terms of isn't it oh, it's so ironic to me. It's just so ironic that we gotta be lectured to that we're the minority among scholarship in the academy and what we believe about the resurrection but carriers allowed to be like one or two people in the history of historians to question the existence of jesus earl dotery and and, and what there's honor in this like why can't we be why can't we be conceptualized the same way you are then there's just so many double standards (laughs) yeah it's it's like what you said before i i think you just have to ignore it otherwise you're going to go insane you just gotta look i'm you'll go insane (laughs) <laughs> oh man it's it drives me crazy but i just assume i'm dumb i'm, I'm the dumb one you guys know everything i guess i don't know yeah it's yeah it's, it again it, it shouldn't be about pride or anything like that just look i i here's what i think here are my reasons what do you think kind of thing and take that into consideration so fully agree with that Here, here's one thing that i i, I got about 10 more minutes by the way Okay. Um, Sorry about that. No, no problem. I should have asked if you. Okay. Um, so I have, we can do it again. I'll, I'll come on any Sunday you want. It's fun. All right. Cool. You um, probably have other guests, so. Yeah. No. No. You're always you're pin welcome. me in for 2025. <laughs> you're, you're welcome anytime. So yeah, don't worry about that. Um, all right. Cool. So. Um, all right. Well, let me let me ask this then. So a couple questions. So one, answer this in five minutes, and I guess we'll have to answer it. Again, I was kind of saying when I evaluate miracles, I have a way of evaluating that. So I, I think the supernatural versus natural divide is meaningless, is, is not helpful in this day and age. Oh, uh, really? It didn't exist. Okay. So, so I evaluate miracles through the lens of intelligent design in divine design. So I, I utilize Dembski's specified complexity. So okay. just in a, in a nutshell, I can't go into my specific criteria, but like, just in a nutshell, look, the specification, it conform, it's an event that conforms to a specified independent pattern. Well, that's what philosophers talk about the religious context. Oh, it's, it's an event that's attached to the Christian religion. It serves to attest the, the truth of that religion. 
um, and it's not subsumable to other religions or something like that. Meaning other religion, like the virgin birth, for example, Islam believes in the virgin birth too. So who, if we could prove that, who gets it? Christians or Islam? Then there's, there's the, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's the complexity criterion. So that's the part you're familiar with. Natural explanations are, uh, it, it's an extraordinary event is what I say. So either natural explanations are provably improbable relative to, you know, no, the notion that God did it or designed that event. Um, or we can prove that the circumstances are extraordinary in some way. Um, or it's also uniqueness is the final thing. So if it's unique, despite a sufficient opportunity for duplication within a natural, ordinary natural context. Uh, so that's the complexity criterion. So, so that's the way I kind of conceptualize how to evaluate miracles. I know it's, it sucks because you got like five minutes to respond, but like just in, in general, no, it's fine. how does that sound to you? Am I nuts or um, what do you think about that? No, I, I am always nuts at first. I'm the one who's nuts. Okay. I like the, I like the supernatural natural distinction. I'd have to talk to you about that more. Uh, I would say uh, it is supernatural because of everything you just said. Um, maybe, or maybe all that stuff is necessary for it to be supernatural, maybe not sufficient, but I'd have to think about examples, but all supernatural means to me is caused by God. That's all I mean by it. Gotcha. Oh, all right. Is that your concept? Um, well, if it's caused by God and it's not caused by the combination of a natural law and the his past history of the universe, um, something else, it needs to be caused by something else besides the past history of the universe and a law of nature, let's just say, then I would could just call that supernatural. Gotcha. Yeah. And, uh, that's all I mean. That's all I mean by it. I think. Yeah, that's all everyone means by it. What, what do you mean by supernatural when you when you said the whole distinction is not right? Um, or something? Well, so you, I don't like it? I shouldn't say that. I, so I, I don't like it for practical purposes when conversing. Oh, with right. Because that they just automatically well supernatural that hasn't been demonstrated to be a thing. What do you, what demonstrated? Do you, oh, I love that word. <laughs> uh, Awesome. That right. word. We need to take a shot every time they say that. No, never mind. <laughs> Demonstrate. <laughs> the last question. Um, I, I see that David's joined us, but I know that um, you got to go, Matt, in, in a couple minutes. Um, oh, man. Yeah, it happens, man. You know, I had a lot of issues with Zoom today, and it's just been crazy. So I understand. Awesome. Well, yeah, I just wanted you to be able to meet uh, Matt before you go in that case. Um, so, so, Sorry, David. Yeah. Dale's kicking me out. That's what happened. No, you're welcome. To <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> so annoying, David, honestly. <laughs> oh, he's still here. Oh. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> all right. So, it happens, man. All right. So, so Matt, um, last question before you go. And, and uh, again, like I said, you're welcome to come back anytime. Just shoot me an email and we'll set it up or I'll shoot you an email. Um, so I'm, a, as David knows, I, I'm kind of a, again, a weirdo. Here, here's me take, standing up for the minority position. I don't care what the majority of scholars think. I believe that the Shroud of Turin is a good evidence for oh, really? Christianity. I, I've developed, kind of like Gary Habermas has his minimal facts approach, I've developed this thing called the minimal relevant features approach. Um, huh. So you can tell I'm a philosopher because I put these stupid labels on everything. But, um, <laughs> you got to use more acronyms, man. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, just, just generally speaking, we can't get into the details maybe in a future show, but just generally speaking, um, 
do you know anything about the shroud evidence? Do you think it's a farce? Zero. Zero. I think I remember <laughs> seeing something on TV about it when I was a teenager. I've never, ever looked into it. I, I probably should. I, it, I'll bl- blame my kids. You know, I was the same way. I was the same way until I actually had Teddy and Dale talk me into it, and then I've looked into it. It actually, it's actually pretty good evidence. It's crazy. Yeah, I remember seeing something about. Again, for me to make up my mind, I got to see the arguments uh, pro and con, of course. But like something about the fabric of it is weird. Cries out for explanation. Something, something like that. That's 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 all I remember. Gotcha. When they zoom in on the fabric of it, there's something in this fabric that. A lot of people think, I guess, can't be naturally explained or something. Yeah, yeah, right. right? The body, the images of of Jesus. Well, I use the word natural again. Dang it, they don't have the relevant features. There we go. There, there we go. <laughs> now you're good. I'm being unpractical again. So unpractical. <laughs> awesome. All right, cool. Well, so so yeah, I know you got to go. So we will end here. Uh, like I said, I'd love to to have you guys back on, maybe with David present, since he's my more charming counterpart he's more with it talking oh that's my son's name yeah <laughs> good name good I name it. yep. oh it's great kingly <laughs> yep my son my son's name's david too he's the third david the third nice yep. I like it pass it on we're we're we're, we're continuing the legacy of david there you go <laughs> that's right yeah, yeah hey Dave, maybe we could do it on um pora or something like do a proselytizer pasta show because i know you do the live stuff or whatever so. yeah yeah, anytime. Um, except that proselytizer apostatize is going away. So I, I am going to talk to you about that uh, after the meeting. So let me let you talk. Uh, let me let you finish out the broadcast so we can talk afterwards. All right, cool. All right, cool. So, so yeah, with that said, that that's it. Thank you so much, Matt, for putting up with me and my uh, unsane questions. Putting up with me. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. <laughs> awesome. So How do I do this? Should I leave or are you just going to end it? Um, I probably should leave, right? Well, yeah, so I, I will. Oh, it's not live. That's right. I, I will end it, end the recording now. But just before I go for the audience, next week, Dr. Tony Costa is going to be on. He's going to be speaking Doctor. to me about uh, Jesus's miracles. So outside of Jesus' resurrection, uh, what's the historical evidence for things like the nature miracles of Jesus or his healings and exorcisms? So I'm really excited about that. I've been trying to get a, some one of my uh, scholars or friends to come on to talk about that for a while. So yeah, look forward to that next week. Uh, and okay. next week.